we did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network, Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks. September is the most birthday-packed month of the year, so chances are you have a few celebrations coming up. Make sure your friends and family feel special with a gorgeous bouquet of roses from 1-800-Flowers.com. 1-800-Flowers makes it easy to send the perfect gift. 24 multicolored roses for just $39.99. To get 24 multicolored roses for just $39.99, visit 1-800-Flowers.com slash tune in. That's 1-800-Flowers.com slash tune in. Voici qui tuerait Teresa. La vie n'est pas juste. La justice est sans les yeux et dysfonctionnelle. Et certains flics ne sont pas intelligents et dédiés comme à la télévision. sex trade in the 70s flashing fire will follow uh, that, that um, little quote is it's from um, it's Shakespeare most of the titles for the podcast it's usually a, um, some words from Shakespeare sometimes I take it from the Greek tragedies um, Euripides or Sophocles Aeschylus but usually it's it's uh, Shakespeare. Flashing fire will follow. Pistol's cock is up and flashing fire will follow. Don't need to go into much explanation there. I think it's uh, I think it's from Henry V. It, it might be Henry IV, but I'm pretty some um, bartolator out there can quibble with me, but I'm, I think it's Henry the Henry V. Flashing fire will follow. <clears throat> now, we had been talking about the Quebec um, sex trade. And, um, you know, for a long time, um, you know, the, the go-go girls, strippers, the, that, that whole circuit was controlled in the Montreal area by Frank Catroni, the notorious Montreal mobster. And... Uh, at one point, he even tried to um, take his his the, the Quebec model and replicate it in the Toronto area and failed. Um, 
but something I remembered when I when 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 I was a kid in high school, there was a there was a couple of boys who, who French guys who went to school with us, um, and the rumor was that their father had like a go-go club on the North Shore of Quebec, and we, you know we used to tease them about this and all that, you know, your father, you know, employs strippers and all that, but um, uh, they weren't ashamed of it. They were, you know, quite proud of it. Um, Yeah, that's, you know, he had to make a living. What do you want him to do? Um, So remember the, remembering this, I called Serge up and uh, asked him, (laughs) we, we hadn't, I don't think we've spoken in over 30 years. And I said, uh, uh, how are you doing? Can you tell me all about your dad's strip club? <laughs> Which he, he really he really kindly did. Um, we had a long conversation about it. And I, I just think as an introduction, I'll, I'll summarize some of, the, some of the highlights from Serge's point of view. He said that, um, he said that ultimately the biker gangs uh, would control the stripper industry. And, and that was certainly true in the larger urban areas in the 70s. Um, but not in um, in the case of uh, of his father. He, he was in a smaller uh, town, so there was not as much. There was not a much to profit from it. Um, and of course, the the bikers' gangs in those days also had a strong relationship with the the, the mob. Um, and you know, his perspective was that cops just didn't want to battle the bikers. At, you know, in that era, they, they, there was not a lot of interest in it. Um, and he said that his dad's bar taught him how to deal with all kinds of people. And that gave him a great perspective that, and that, and that's true about Serge. He was, he was accepting of, uh, anyone. Whereas, you know, quite frankly, when I I was that age, I was a bit of a snob and, and, uh, you know, you had to be of a certain, you know, intelligence and have a certain sense of humor in order to, you know, pass my test and pedigree. I lost all that much later, but um, Serge realized this early in life. And he said, um, you know, at eight years old, he was, he was cleaning glasses in his father's bar. And he said he, um, the way it would work, his dad would go down to Montreal, um, um, you know, he'd drive or he'd take a bus or a van, um, and um, and he'd he'd pick up these girls and take them back, and they'd stay for like a two week stint. Uh, th- there was a place upstairs above, like the the bar where they had their own rooms, but that there was also, you know, like a strip motel, if you know what I mean, um, and the girls would, you know take the men not to their rooms that was private, but to these motel rooms. Um, and he said initially in the early days, the, the, the clientele were like lumberjacks and uh, workers from the pulp and paper uh, mill. And the, 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 the place would be packed from like 8 a.m. to 3 p.m. Uh, if, you, um, if you can, you know, I, I didn't really... Um, you know, consider that time span, but you know, the more I thought of it, it made it made more sense. Um, and he said, "Yeah, a prostitution, absolutely." I mean, he said there, there there was a guarantee of that. He said at any one time there'd be like twenty strippers um, 
it was topless, but he said also, you know, this was an isolated area on the North Shore of Quebec. It was much more than that. Um, and he said when the pulp and paper mill industry died, things began to change. He said um, then then women were coming from uh, uh, the city of Baycomo. Um, and uh, so there's this shift in the 80s. And the clientele is different. Now it's like guys, businessmen in suits. Um, and, but he said there's also a mix, right? There's people on welfare who come in. They'd cash their welfare uh, check um, and, you know, and, you know, start drinking drafts and um, watch, watching the girls. And uh, he said, he said they, they made big money at the first of the month when everyone got their welfare check. Um, in the late 80s, the industry shift, and then he said that's when the bikers came in. Uh, and the club was down at that point to from 20 to six or seven strippers. Um, and he said there were two types of girls who worked there, you know. There were the serious ones, right, like girls who were doing this in order to also, you know, study and get an education. And, and then he said there were the partiers. He said, of course, there are drugs, there's drinking. Um, but he said in the 70s, it was really geared towards making money. And the, the drugs didn't start coming in uh, until the late 70s when the bikers brought the, brought, brought the, the drugs, the heavy drugs. Um, uh, you know, at that time, it, certainly cocaine, heroin, um, uh, methamphetamine. Um, and then the industry, he said, it kind of for, for them, it died in the at the end of the eighties. Um, um, and I asked him directly about control. Was did was it his, as I say, his impression that his father's place was mob controlled? And he said it, it wasn't. It wasn't profitable enough for it to be have been controlled like that. Um, he said if 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 there was that level of influence from either bikers or or the mob. Serge's comment was um, they would have been a lot richer today. So that's, you know, just a a perspective on things. I think it it, it lends some um, some knowledge and information regarding uh, what we were talking about uh, last time. Lucy Baudouin, she she works um, like at one of these motels uh, in the uh, Longueuil Saint Hubert area in the South Shore. Of Montreal uh, at night, but by day she's a she's a Cégep student um, in uh, kind of in the plateau area of, of the city of Montreal. I'm gonna move things forward here several decades. This is a story uh, from the Los Angeles Times uh, about a Vermont cold case 
with uh, bearings and a perspective of Montreal. And uh, it's something, it's certainly something I missed, I think, um, because of its uniqueness. M many, many people might have missed this. This is, again, Los Angeles Times. This was written in uh, May 1997 by Wilson, uh, Wilson Ring of the Associated Press. Murder Mystery Haunts Vermont Detective Crime Montreal teen's body was found in U.S. in 1988, but not identified until last fall. Her tumultuous past seemed to foretell her future and may hold key to finding her killer. Canaan, Vermont. Nobody missed her. No grieving mother or father. No anguished sibling or grandparent ever came forward to claim her remains. Even the townspeople in this tiny border community forgot her. To the Vermont State Police, she was simply Canaan Jane Doe, a young woman whose decomposed body was found in a Canaan ravine in 1988. She had lain there for nearly a year. But one detective didn't forget her. Now she has an identity and a history. She was Chantal Soriol, a 16-year-old runaway who spent her adolescence on the streets of Montreal, sleeping between parked cars or under bridges, doing drugs and selling her body. Police still don't know who killed her or how she ended up dead in a ravine off Route 114, a few hundred yards from the Canadian border. But because of the clues left by her life, her violent end seemed inevitable. The clues led to Montreal's St. Catherine Street, a seedy drug supermarket where teenage prostitutes beckon from street corners and sex shows fill the stores, where children on park benches sleep and in back alleys they regard as homes, where hunger's a given and violence, hard drugs and disease are the stuff of everyday life. This was Chantel's world. Chantal had long planned on running away from the Maison Notre-Dame Youth Detention Center in Montreal, suburb of Laval. She wanted to escape the rules and restrictions and ultimately escape Montreal. On a Saturday in May 1987, she finally got her chance. She slipped away during a group outing and never came back. The last time... I was with her before she ran. She was all nervous, paranoid. A package of nerves, said a friend who was with Chantal in the center on the streets. She spoke to a reporter on condition her real name not be published. Instead, she asked to be called Chat, French for cat. Now a 26-year-old mother of three, Chat only learned last month that the remains found in the ravine were those of her friend. At first I was shocked, then I cried, said Shah, speaking through an interpreter. She and Chantel were like sisters, she said. 
Everything she did, I did. They had known each other on the streets and at the youth center, a converted convent that shelters young runaways from Quebec, a way station for troubled children on the road to adulthood. It isn't a jail. Only one locked door separates the children from the streets. In the girls' section, each resident is given a small cubicle to decorate as she wants. Some are plastered with sexually provocative ads for jeans or rock stars, such as Tony Braxton. Others are decorated with colorful drawings of Mickey Mouse. When it comes to solving murders, the Vermont State Police has one of the highest success rates in the nation. But before police could begin their search for Kanan Jane Doe's killer, they had to find out who she was. They started with a skull found by a fisherman on May 15, 1988, a day short of a year after Chantel walked away from the outing. The skull, found near Leech Stream just off Route 114, told police how she died. Her head had been smashed repeatedly with a blunt object. Investigators spent hours on their hands and knees with garden trowels and rakes in a grid laid out for them by a forensic anthropologist. The mosquitoes were terrible. They didn't find all the pieces, just enough for the medical examiner to determine they belonged to a woman in her late teens or early 20s, about five feet two, with light hair and a pronounced overbite. At the time, they estimated the remains could have been there up to six years. They made a composite of her face and posted the case on the National Crime Information Center computer. They filed a similar request with the Canadian Royal Mounted Police and scoured the area for someone who might know where Canaan Jane Doe had come from. Canaan is located where Vermont, New Hampshire, and Quebec come together. It's Vermont's most remote community. But it's on the main route between Montreal and the main coast, a popular destination for Canadian tourists. It might be small, but Canaan has its intrigue. Countless small paths lead smugglers across the border. Cigarettes and liquor go north into Canada. People, for the most part, head south. And we can definitely say that that has changed. (laughs) About two miles east of the spot where Chantal's skull was discovered is Wallace Pond, a small lake that straddles the border. The Canadian side is lined with summer camps. Experts determined that Canaan Jane Doe had been killed during the warm months, probably when Wallace Pond buzzed with activity. The locals knew nothing of the girl. At the youth center in Laval, workers are saddened but not surprised to learn of Chantal's death. It's not unique. Several years ago, a girl from the center, was found shot to death in a nearby park. 
Her killer was just recently convicted. Last year, a girl out on a pass to attend a baptism was killed in a drive-by shooting in Montreal. Her companion had been the target. Chantal was reported missing on May 19, 1987, three days after she disappeared. By that time, she was back on the streets of Montreal. Her father, Gilles, still lives near Montreal, along with Chantal's brothers and a sister. But Gilles refuses to discuss his dead daughter. The state police will say little about what they know about Chantal. A photo her family gave police shows a squatting teenager with a round face surrounded by cascading curls. In the photo, she expressionlessly holds up a V for victory symbol with her right hand. Her police file in Canada lists her as an alcoholic and a drug abuser. Police say her mother is dead, but they don't know how old Chantal was when her mother died. The details of Chantal's life come from Cha. She was with Chantal at Notre Dame and knew of her plans to run away. Cha stayed at the center throughout 1987 and didn't know what Chantel did that summer before she died. They used to sleep under park benches, bridges, between park cars, anywhere. When asked how they managed in the winter, she said it was easier than the summer. We'd find some rich man with a warm bed, Shaw said. But it was an even darker side of Chantel that probably got her killed, Shaw said. Chantel worked as a drug courier for one of Montreal's notoriously violent motorcycle gangs. Chantel would carry the drugs from the dealer to the buyer. Shaw and Chantel moved stolen property, prostituted themselves. They'd try anything. She also had a big mouth. She used to stick her nose in business that didn't concern her, Shot said. She was scared most of the time, but she wouldn't show it. Terrified of the gangs, even a decade later, Shah wouldn't discuss the details of the work, nor would she be more specific about the people they worked for. Chantal had a dream. It's a dream shared by many Montreal street children. She said she wanted to go away from Montreal and never be found again. That's why Shah didn't find it unusual when Chantal disappeared. On the one hand, Shah laughs as she remembers running from police, climbing statues in Montreal's St. Louis Square, messed up on drugs and screaming at passerbys. The best time I spent with her was here, Shah said, standing on the edge of the square. We were free. Detective Sergeant Roland Prairie of the Vermont State Police was one of the cops who scoured the Canaan Ravine in 1988. 
Even when he moved on to new cases, he never forgot about the unidentified girl from the ravine. The case was on my mind all the time, Prairie said recently. This was somebody's kids. Somebody out there knows who did this. After the Kane and Jane Doe case was posted on the NCIC computer, the state police got hundreds of calls from across North America. Most were easy to discard, but others weren't. Investigators spent countless hours answering those queries. Nothing matched. The Vermont State Police work closely with their counterparts across the Canadian border. Last summer, Prairie was talking with Noel Bolduc, an investigator with the Quebec Provincial Police. Known along the border by its French name, Sarté du Québec, or SQ. Prairie recited the facts of Jane Doe's case off the top of his head. Combing the missing person's file, they narrowed the possibilities down to a handful. In September, Bolduc gave Prairie Chantal's dental records. Two weeks later, a dentist working for the Vermont Medical Examiner's Office found they matched. Her name was made public in January. There's no explanation why her file didn't surface in 1988 when the trail to her killer was fresh. I have no idea why we came up with the possibilities and they didn't in 1988, said Bulldog. I wasn't here in 1988. The state police believe they can trace Chantel's movements in the summer of 1987 and eventually find out who killed her. We have homicides that are much older than this one, said State Police Lieutenant Ronald de Vincenzi, who at one time oversaw the investigation. We will go forth and actively pursue this. Police won't tell everything they know about the case. They won't speculate if she was killed in Canaan or if her body was thrown into the ravine on Coal Hill. If you guess... You guess wrong, said Prairie. Still, no one has claimed Chantel's remains, which sit in a box at the medical examiner's office in Burlington. There is no law in Vermont governing how to dispose of remains that are identified but unclaimed. De Vincenzi said the state police would be happy to deliver Chantel to her family, but they haven't been asked to do so. Margaret Dueck, the head of the Protection Division of the Quebec Agency that had custody of Chantal when she ran away, said it bothered her that no one had claimed her body. I don't have the authority to pick up the remains, she said. It's up to her family. Dueck said she would reach out to Chantal's father to let him know she needed to go home. Meanwhile, her bones lie in the box, waiting. I'm not going to 
attempt to solve Chantel's case. Um, and I'm not going to point out the um, obvious frustrations um, with the police investigation. These these things are all too familiar. Um, not my point this time. My point, I think, really is uh, um, less about that and, and more why I like this story is it gives you such an interesting perspective snapshot into what um, life is like on the streets. If we, um, I mean, if I ask for sympathy and support um, and understanding and for a case like Teresa, um, who is forgotten, man, these women, these girls are the missing, missing. They are so far marginalized and uh it's they're, they're just dust of memory and the, the cases are very very uh unlikely to be solved um, so what i again what i do what i do find interesting is that it's very hard to get information on on what the lifestyle is for the, these girls they run away from home and then they're in group homes and then the next thing you you know they're they're working the sex trade and they're, you know, they're involved with, um, Johns and, and, uh, you know, their pimp and, and, and all this. And they're, you know, and they're running drugs and stolen merchandise and then they're dead. Right. Um, and it, certainly interesting for me, you know, by this point, uh, you know, if you look at the seventies, uh, in order to run an operation like this, right, you needed a bar and a hotel, uh, the whole nine yards. By 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 this time and by today, you know, a pimp has figured out he doesn't need all that overhead. He doesn't be needing to pay for, um, you know, rent um, or you know, property tax for the facility, or doesn't need to be paying the payroll for waitresses and bartenders and all. He doesn't need any of that. All he need all he needs uh, is is the girl, right? and a place to go to rent for a couple of hours and you can be making much more money than you would have been made in the in the 70s um under under the circumstances of the 70s which was you know satellite location bar to bar to bar up the north shore over to the south shore running the girls running the drugs running the merchandise very complex uh, uh, operation Anyway, as I say, this the, um, Chantal's story could be anyone. It uh, it could be Lucy uh, Baudouin's story, and uh, it could certainly be um, the case we're going to talk about next: 1973-1974 disappearance of Suzanne Charbonneau. Suzanne Charbonneau case. I've I've been aware of it for quite some time, um, and then uh, about this time last year, it's um, it's in the Sarté de Québec's portfolio. So uh, this time last year, they put that case up on their cold case website, uh, which was um, 
which was a little surprising to me. Um, and we'll get to that. But um, they did. And, and initially, I wanted to cover it. And I, 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 I thought, mm, you know, if I was the family and, and this just got off the ground running, would they really want me sticking my nose into the thing? So I I left it alone. I thought, you know, give give the Sarté de Québec a head start. Give them a year. And it's been a year. And, you know, like everything else, nothing is solved. Um, so I, I'm, I'm going to cover it. Um, there's not a lot of information on it. So there's not a lot I can say or jeopardize at this point. It is in the, the Charbonneau case is interesting in the context of the three-act um, podcast we're currently doing about the sex trade. That, that's its important. On its own, it, it doesn't say a lot. Um, but within the structure, um, I think this case has a lot to say. Um, so to begin with, and, and um, I alluded to it last week when, when, we, were in, when we were talking about Lucy Baudouin, um, I had I had read the the article with the uh, cinq femmes uh, assassinées par des maniacs, five women assassinated by maniacs. This kind of idea, like in the mid seventies, things were beginning to to turn, um, and you had um, sexual murders um, that at the time didn't appear to have as a direct a motive as kind of robbery, um, you know, I I strangle her and then I take her purse kind of things. They sort of begin to get this series of cases where, you know, women are found raped and strangled, but but no one takes the jewelry or the purse or the money. And this begins to baffle uh, investigators. So anyway, um, you know, for a long time, I, I, I actually, I just had the cover of this L.O., police article but not the content and um i have um a number of good colleagues who are good sleuths um i have several who are really um not good sleuths you know uh you know um some you know i'm trying to think christian gravner and a friend of mine annie are really diligent and thorough and um they're also sane <laughs> uh, and they often run down information for me. Uh, it's, you know, it's the ones that try to, you know, they, they're helpful, but, but then they come up with these all encompassing string theory, you know, like they're going to solve the universe and every single case is connected. And, you know, that way lies madness. Uh, but anyway, I, I don't know who it was. It was, uh, uh, if it was Annie or Christian, it was. I think it was Christian, but oftentimes it could be any one of them because they're always tracking down things, little bits for me. And they found the content of of this Suzanne Charbonneau article. And as I say, there's actually f- like five little pieces on five women from uh, May 26, 1974, Hello Police. And it's very short, so I'll, I'll just I'll read it to you. Again, a go-go dancer, a victim of murder. Allo Police, May 26, 1974. 
Police investigators with the Sûreté de Québec du Montréal's crime contre le personne have finally identified the body of a young woman found in the woods in Sedan de Plain neighborhood in Montreal. The victim is Ms. Suzanne Charbonneau, a young go-go dancer, 24 years of age, who lived at 5158 de Lanaudière in east, the east end of Montreal. The body of the young woman was found around 8.15 in the morning, Saturday, May 11th, by three hunters who, with dogs, were tracking rabbits in the woods near Saint-Anne-de-Plaine. The investigation is being led by Caporal Raymond Piche, assisted by Agent C. Tremblay of the Crime contre le Persan unit, of the SQ de Montréal, and they revealed that the young woman has not been seen since November 20th, 1973. An autopsy was performed last weekend by Dr. Jean Latorel of the Medico-Legal Institute of Montreal to determine the exact cause of death of the young dancer, but the results are not yet known. A fact remains obvious to the police investigators. Suzanne Charbonneau was a victim of an assassin, and important developments are expected shortly relative to this murder. Now, that is interesting because when I filed um, an inquest for the uh, case file on Charbonneau, with the Palais de Justice in the province of Quebec. Um, the only thing I got back um, was a determination from the Sûreté de Quebec from that era, victim, Suzanne Charbonneau, uh, locality, Saint-Anne-de-Plaine, uh, near Terrebonne. And it says here, offense, suicide. Um... And I can only think why Charbonneau remained dormant and forgotten for so many years, because there was, to my knowledge, no follow-up from this uh, Allo Police article in May 74. That's the last you hear of Suzanne, uh, Suzanne uh, Charbonneau until, of course, um, last winter 2018. Uh, and so then you go, well, with so many of these cases, you go, why? But with this one, you kind of go, well, why was an, why is there such an, an appearance of inactivity with it? And I can only conclude because of this initial determination by the Sarité de Québec that uh, Ms. Charbonneau uh, went into the woods uh, in, in 1973 um when is this in uh, in november so so in november in the in in the winter in the cold she goes into the woods of saint anne de plains um and uh, like like the elephant's graveyard or something she uh, uh nobly and uh, commits suicide and uh, lays down and dies in in the forest and I just ain't buying that, bub. 
um, it sounds to me like um, a a long time screw up that was well overdue to be corrected. Uh, in their defense, thank whoever it was at the SQ who took a second look at this and said, my God, and even though the initial determination in the news um, and the, the police were saying murder, somehow that got reversed. Thank you to the current SQ, whoever um, made the determination and had the insight to, to reopen this file. As I say, I, I have to leave you at that, this point with just that and kind of leaving you kind of wondering, um, that's, that's it? No, that's not it. As I say, this is, this is nuanced and we don't know a lot, but I think um, it all will be revealed next time when we continue uh, this three-part podcast. In the third act, I think the events of cases we discuss there will inform why it is that the determination was made for Suzanne Charbonneau, the determination that she committed suicide. That's our podcast for this week. This has been Who Killed Teresa? Qui a tiré Teresa? Jean if you um, like what you hear, please give us a five-star rating on, I, I don't know, whatever your platform is, uh, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitchers, probably by now about a half dozen new ones that I, I'm so out of touch I don't even know about. You can follow us on social media um, at Teresa Allure, T-H-E-R-E-S-A-A-L-L-O-R-E. That's Twitter. And on um, uh, Facebook at Teresa Allure, the podcast. Um, as always, I usually post additional information about each show uh, Chaque grand spectacle, des photos, des musiques, des choses comme ça, c'est la même pour que cette, cette podcast de Suzanne Charbonneau. There's a website, theresalore.com, T-H-E-R-E-S-A-A-L-L-O-R-E.com. Uh, where I will put the visual information we've discussed here, including the certificate of suicide um, from the certificate back for Suzanne um, and whatever other information I have. I think the original, uh, I'll post the original article from May 74 from Allo Police. Um, 
and in addition, um, on YouTube, there's a YouTube channel for Teresa, and where I, and if you follow me, I, again, you know, 3D movie film information about Teresa, as well as anything that I, particularly about Quebec and homicide, um, that I find, or even just Quebec society that I find interesting, I, um, I post there. So that's it. Uh, that's our show. For cette semaine, c'est qui t'a tiré Teresa. Je suis John Alor et bienvenue. Uh, bon, bon, bon jour. Non, bon jour. Bon, bon soirée. Ou peut-être bon week-end, bon journée. With MailChimp, you get a whole lot more than a URL. You get an all-in-one marketing platform to help drive sales. That means you can connect your data to make more informed, smarter decisions. And you get powerful automation tools like our customer journey builder to ensure you never miss an opportunity to turn shoppers into loyal customers. So if you're ready to integrate your marketing and boost sales, get started today at MailChimp.com smartmarketing. MailChimp, built for growing businesses. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network, Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks.